there has been a notable shift over the past several decades towards dairy alternatives such as soy milk. There are plenty of reasons, such as lactose intolerance, concerns over animal welfare, and a lower environmental impact. But did you know that consuming soy products may also affect your body's ability to deal with fat? Open your ears and mind, and let's chat about that. Welcome to GriffinCast, a podcast where we casually chat about science coming out of the College of Biological Sciences at the University of Guelph and how that work can affect lives around the world. I'm your host, Michael M. With me today for a special dual guest episode is Dr. David Much and PhD student Melissa Gonzalez-Soto, and we'll be chatting about how researchers are uncovering the impacts of soy diets on fatty acids in our bodies and what that might mean for human health. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Very happy to have you. So how would you two describe what your field of research is? I'll go first. And then we, okay, I'll, I'll yeah. start off first with the big picture of the lab, and then I'll pass it over to, to Melissa. So the, the research, uh, my lab is very much focused on nutrigenomics, so the study of diet gene interactions, and that can happen in two ways. We're very interested in looking at how uh, nutrients affect gene function and subsequently protein activity and metabolite abundance and so forth. So we're very interested, uh, for example, in the study of obesity, insulin resistance, and how different nutrients could influence those outcomes. Uh, we're also kind of conversely looking at it from the other perspective, uh, diet gene interactions, where we also are very interested at looking at genetic variants that might in, uh, vary between any group of individuals and how that could potentially change how a person reacts or responds to a particular food. So there's sort of two, two sides to that coin, right? When we're looking at diet gene interactions, one is how does diet affect all of our genes and function and so forth? And the other is how do our genes affect how we respond to diets? Yeah, so my research is mostly focused on omega-3 synthesis. So I became interested in this because we actually noticed, I guess it was like, what, two years ago that no one was really, I don't want to say no one as a whole, but not a lot of people were looking at um, kind of how omega-3 endogenous synthesis is regulated in the body by other nutrients. So there was evidence of um, non-nutrient factors like, for example, BMI, sex, and other factors influencing this pathway, but not really specific nutrients and how they affected um, the process. So we started looking into that and we came across very old papers from the 80s, actually, comparing soy protein um, with casein mostly, calling it dairy. And um, they saw that soy protein actually decreased the activity of the enzymes involved in the pathway of um, both omega-6 and omega-3 production. Um, which we thought it was very interesting, but for some reason, we don't know why um, those investigators stopped looking at it for like so long. So recently, no one has done um, research on this area. So we decided to start doing it. And actually my original master's project was to have an animal project, just comparing soy and dairy and seeing how that affected the omega-3 synthesis. But of course, because of COVID, um, I had to change it to something Classic more. COVID. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess everyone can relate with that. So I did this analysis, um, the one we'll be talking about today. 
And I kind of shifted my way of seeing things to more um, an applied thing and more as an observational study with this data set. So yeah, that's mainly what I'm looking at. So I know you talked about a lot in your background just now in terms of how you got to this point, but could you briefly describe what omega-3s are for our audience and what the importance of them are for human health? I, you're the expert. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I, I, I'll, I'll take this one then. Uh, so omega-3s are a class of, of fatty acids known as polyunsaturated fatty acids. In our diets, we have two essential fatty acids that are required that we have to get from foods because our bodies can't synthesize them. One of them is an omega-3, one of them is an omega-6. So the omega-3 is known as uh, linolenic acid and, and the omega-6 is known as linoleic acid. What our body then can do is using these uh, two essential fatty acids, the linolenic acid, the omega-3, and the linoleic acid, the omega-6, is through various uh, enzymes, we can convert those fatty acids into a whole other group of fatty acids. So omega-3s are very important because for the most part, our diets now, we don't get enough omega-3s in our diet. The primary source of omega-3s, the, the essential one, linolenic acid, is from grain products. So things like flaxseed, for example, is a very rich source. Uh, canola oils is another one that's now enriched with it. Whereas the longer chain uh, omega-3s are the ones that we're very familiar with as being from fish oil. So you get a lot of supplements with mm. EPA and DHA. And the reason those supplements are so popular and prevalent is because people don't really eat a lot of fish. And, and mm. so those are the primary sources, the natural sources for EPA and DHA. And so, so those omega-3s are all very, very important, and they have functions in a wide range of different, uh, different processes. They're, for example, anti-inflammatory. They play a role in signaling pathways. They serve as precursors for a whole family of reactive lipid mediators that are also involved in controlling inflammation. Um, they are an important part of plasma membranes and cellular membranes, and so affect the fluidity of those membranes. So there's an awful lot of functions that are attributed to uh, these omega-3s, as well as the omega-6s. They're equally, they're equally used in those ways as well. So clearly there's a really large importance of omega-3s and omega-6s for our health, but do you always want to investigate omega-3s and 6s and fatty acids in general, or was there something that kind of steered you in that direction? This has definitely been an area of great interest for me. I mean, from my from my own training uh, along the, you know, whether it was a PhD or then postdocs uh, positions, I, I was pretty fortunate to, to work in a, a number of different areas that I was then able to bring together here in my own research program here at Guelph. And in doing so, that allowed me to really to, to focus in on, on the uh, on dietary fats. And so omega-3s are a big part of that investigation in my lab, but, but not all. We, we do study, you know, we do study other uh, uh, fatty acids, omega-6s. We look at the monounsaturated fats and saturated fats because they all play a very important role in health and disease outcomes. So, mm -hmm. and every fatty acid does something different. They're handled by the body differently. They are, come from different sources. They have different cellular functions. So we're really very interested. In, when I say we, it's we as the lab are very interested in a lot of these different pathways and processes. Um, I guess for myself, actually, it's funny. Now that I'm thinking about it, in my undergrad, I used to think that lipids were so complicated that I would always say like, no, like that's not a thing that I want to do. Um, <laughs> but here I am. <laughs> yeah. So it's definitely not since like I started being interested in research that I've been 
um, interested in omega-3. It was more of like a functional food interest in general, just kind of like how some foods can actually um, help prevent diseases. And omega-3 is a big one that most people are interested in. So yeah, when I got here to the lab, I was like, okay, this is actually pretty nice. I think I'm into omega-3. So speaking of being a, a recent interest, uh, you recently published a study titled Soy Consumption, but Not Dairy Consumption, is inversely associated with fatty acid desaturase activity in young adults. So in plain layman's terms, uh, eating more soy food products is decreasing your ability to create more of these long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, or LCPUFAs. And we kind of really alluded to more about why you say that. Do you initially expect that kind of outcome? As I mentioned, there's like maybe like a couple of studies um, back from the 80s which they actually like gave my soy protein or casein and they did see a decrease on the activity of this enzymes. So we were expecting that, but because this is not an intervention at all, we just had data from 10 years ago, pretty much. We didn't know how that would translate um, in humans, which was actually kind of like the main interest because I guess we're working the opposite way people would usually do. Like you would pretty much do an animal study and then go um, to humans, but we are working from humans to animals. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I hoped to see the same that I, um, that I read about on the animal studies, but I was kind of surprised when we did see that there were lower levels of omega-6 fatty acids, as well as the estimates, because you cannot measure the activity um, from this type of data. We just estimated with ratios, so pretty much you divide um, the precursor, as David mentioned, um, for example, for omega-6 would be linoleic acid and um, to the product, which would be arachidonic acid. So you divide that and you can estimate the activity of the enzymes involved in this pathway. So of mm -hmm. course, it's not, you cannot compare it um, directly to these animal studies where they actually measured the activity. So you kind of mentioned it briefly before, but um, in terms of relating casein to dairy diets, but can you briefly describe what casein is and why is it used as a proxy? Yeah, so there are two types of protein in dairy. I guess most people can um, identify whey because that's the supplement that most athletes or whoever goes to the gym drinks. So there's casein and whey in mm. dairy. So those are the two types of proteins present there. So this old studies were only using casein. And I believe that's because um, the chow diet, that's how you call just um, a controlled diet for mice the source of protein that they use is casein. So everyone uses kind of as a control protein just um, to feed the mice. Um, but we actually wanted to see the entire profile of dairy in this diet. So, so um, we were interested in both casein and whey. Back into your study, there are several factors that can influence fatty acid levels in the body for example, like age and diet, and your focus of your study was, well, on the diet of consuming either soy or dairy products. And so in the end, your implications for the study was looking at the impacts of not only omega-6 and omega-3 levels, but as you mentioned before, using these ratios of your precursors and your end products to determine your relative activity of the possible enzymes used to speed the process of creating more fatty acids. Do you have anything you'd like to clarify about that description of your study? You mentioned that the enzymes speed up this process. It's just the enzymes that are in charge of 
producing this fatty acid. So you start with the essential fatty acids, alpha-linolenic acid and linoleic acid, um, both omega-3 and omega-6. And those enzymes are the responsible ones for converting them into LC-PUFAs, which are the long chain end products of those precursors. Oh, okay. So in your study, you separated, essentially it's into two different segments. Your first segment is looking at if they either drink uh, dairy milk, soy milk, both, or none. And then later on, you separate by servings of dairy and soy over the course of a month. Out of curiosity, I was reading through your methods and you decided that if someone had consumed one serving of milk or soy products, so in the equivalent of eight ounces, which is roughly the weight of two to three apples or 240 milliliters, so about a cup of milk. So why just one single serving for an entire month? Yeah, that's a very good question because actually it came up with my committee. <laughs> I was going to say, you're, 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 it's almost like a, you were in the exam, uh, the thesis examination because this is a question that's coming back you know, to Melissa. Yeah, it's giving me PTSD <laughs> from my defense. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. Um, so because there's really no literature on how dairy or soy impact this pathway, we really didn't know how much of each would make a difference. So basically what we wanted was whoever was consuming either soy milk or milk would be included in those groups. Mm. Yeah, it was one of the, it was a challenge, right? Because, you know, how do you define mm. intake? Some people might have very sporadic intake and some people might have very consistent intake. So consistent intake, you know, if you have a, a bowl of cereal every day, you know, you're having milk or some beverage with that it's very easy to quantify that, right? But, but uh, it's, it's challenging if people are having very sporadic consumption. The food frequency questionnaires or the diaries that are used for measuring food intake, it's a, it's a well sort of certified, validated questionnaire that exists and many people use these. And so, you know, you kind of asked about why the 240 mLs or eight, eight ounces, why that particular number? And so that particular number is simply because the questionnaire would use that as their definition of what a serving mm -hmm. size is. So that means a participant would be looking at this because, you know, if you're if you're asked the question, how much milk do you drink today, like in a day, how do you quantify mm -hmm. that? It's pretty challenging, right? But if you mm -hmm. give it in, in relation to about a cup would be one serving, then somebody can say, all oh, right, okay, I had about a cup with my cereal this morning and maybe I had a, I had a, a splash with my coffee and mm -hmm. boom, that's all I had. So you, mm -hmm. you can quantify that a little bit more easily because you can kind of perceive, you know, you can perceive what that, that means mm -hmm. as a quantity. You later on determined that consuming soy products, either alone or in combination with dairy products, was lowering overall omega-6 uh, LC-PUFA levels and decreasing desaturase activity. So in other words, there seemed to be decreased ability for the body to create um, LC-PUFAs, at least in the omega-6 kind of strain. For our listeners, can you describe what this might mean for overall health and what can be done for people who have these lower omega-6 levels to mediate those effects? I would be a little bit more concerned about omega-3 than omega-6. So just kind of as a background, try and see it as something that's happening at the same time from both sides. So both omega-3 and omega-6 share the same en mm -hmm. enzymes. So at the end, if you're affecting one of those enzymes, you're affecting both pathways. Right, because it's converted from one to the other. Yeah, right. exactly. Okay. Yeah, so even though we um, saw differences in omega-6 comparing to omega-3 um, in the analysis we did, we also saw differences in, in the estimated activity of the enzyme. So that would mean that it, at the end of the day, it can affect 
both sides. But as David mentioned, we do not consume a lot of omega-3 from the diet. So it means that your body is relaying on that endogenous synthesis. As for omega-6, you're actually consuming a lot because the Western diet is mainly um, omega-6 and not a lot of omega-3s, um, not a lot of fish, uh, whereas there's a lot of vegetable oils which have um, omega-6. So maybe a little bit of reduction in those enzymes won't really affect you and the like talking about omega-6s because you're getting most of them from the diet so you're covered in that sense mm -hmm. but if you're not getting enough omega-3 from the diet and besides that you're adding something that's slowing down that, that pathway or making it less efficient because it's actually a very inefficient pathway. So making it on top of that more inefficient and also not consuming it from the diet then can result in lower levels of omega-3, which are usually associated with a higher risk of diseases such as cardiovascular disease, neurological disorders, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. If they're concerned about how much omega-3 they're getting from the diet or how much they should be getting, I would say talk to your dietitian or healthcare professional and maybe come up with a way of increasing these sources of omega-3 in the diet. Or if, um, for example, you're vegan and you cannot eat fish or you're vegetarian, you can always get a supplement. I think that will make our listeners very happy to know that they don't have to worry about, oh no, should I drink soy or regular milk today? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's one of the things that we were like really talking about that it's hard when you find things like this because mm -hmm. you don't want people to think, oh, this is bad. I'm not going to eat it for the rest of my life. It's mm -hmm. more of seeing it as, as, okay, like this has other consequences that we maybe didn't know in the past, but hey, what can we do about it? Yeah, it's about moderation. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's the key health message, like moderation for everything. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> Sorry to be harping and hardly on your study here, but you also acknowledge that uh, the conditions of participants were relatively similar. So they were all healthy, early 20 to late 20 year olds. Would you expect to see similar results in other groups of people, say younger individuals like children or older, like say middle age to like retired age? Now I'm thinking about like the non-nutritional perspective and all those factors that affect the pathway. And I believe there's not a lot of studies looking at the saturation activity so the activity of the enzymes compared like within across the board with the age um but i read about levels of omega-3 like specific ones so epa and dha being positively associated with age um the only thing that i would note is that usually in women I, I believe from like 40 to 60 there's lower omega-3 levels in the body probably because of estrogen levels so if we were very specific i would say that if we took a group of 40 to 60 years old of course women um i would see i would expect to see a decrease in their desaturation activity also with soy but it's probably more of the estrogen level but about the, the saturation activity, I wouldn't be so sure how it would change in different age groups. Hmm. So more work needs to be done, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I think that you made 
a very good use of a terrible time in everyone's lives <laughs> during COVID <laughs> to get a really interesting study out there. So what was your favorite part of doing this entire uh, study on omega-6s and omega-3s and different diets? Yeah, well, my I think my favorite part was because I actually started an animal study. So we got mice and we gave them soy protein and dairy or skim milk as a source of dairy. And I got to start, I guess, like the first batch of mice that we got. Um, and then COVID hit. So that's mm -hmm. when I stopped. So it was really fun to see everything that I was expecting to see in that animal study, just looking up the database and saying, okay, there's something here, like it's actually happening in humans. So mm -hmm. I think my favorite part was when I told David, like, okay, like, I think I see something, I think this is going to work. David, do you have a favorite part? <laughs> uh, well, my favorite part was when Melissa came to me and said, I think I found the same thing we were hoping to see in mice. Uh, it, it, there's nothing better than that, really. I mean, like you said, talk, a, talk about taking a tough situation when research was research was shut down, and, but Melissa definitely made the best of a, of a tough situation, and she was able to pivot to this human analysis, but I asked the exact same question, and, and uh, you know, you, that's what you always hope for, is you hope that it's going to show something in humans. That's, that's, that all obviously is, is where we would really like to see things. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that we did see statistically significant results that aligned with our hypotheses and our goals with the animal work, and also aligned with what was shown in the you know, late 80s, early 90s in, this, in these sort of in vitro studies that were done in, uh, a long time ago, that's exciting. That, that for me, it's, it's not always the case where things align quite as nicely as that. So kind of connected to that, I hadn't really thought about it, but this study is that 10 years old. So do you think there's a there's been a much larger shift towards soy consumption since then? So if you did the study now, would you see like a large soy demographic? And what would yeah. that mean, do you think? I, I would think so. Maybe, I'm not sure about soy. I know it's the one that's the dominant one in the market and also it's been out there for so long. But I feel like right now it's very popular, just like plant-based alternatives, overall yeah. almond milk, oat milk. So other types of um, plant beverages, I would say a lot of people are just switching from dairy to plant-based. And, I mean, and that in itself would be a really interesting area of research because nobody's, nobody has looked at these other kinds of uh, beverages, uh, plant-based beverages mm -hmm. and their impact on, on, fatty acid profiles and desaturase activity. So this, this in itself could be a really neat uh, uh, project to actually do to build on this work would be to actually go and explore more broadly the various kinds of plant-based beverages out there. So that's enough questions from me. Uh, we have a couple questions from social media I'm going to ask you. And our first question is, are there noticeable nutritional differences between non-dairy milks? If yes, which one is the best and is that even close to what dairy milk provides? Interesting. Well, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a good question. So, so definitely, I mean, you know, definitely all of these different, these different uh, plant-based beverages are going to have a different profile of amino acids. They're going to mm -hmm. have a different profile of micronutrients. Some of these things are, 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 are addressed because a lot of these beverages are fortified uh, right. with, for example, vitamin D and calcium, because that's essentially what you're trying to, to, you know, what you get from milk, you, if you remove milk, then you need to get those things from, from another beverage. Mm -hmm. So often those things are fortified. Uh, 
but they, they're all produced differently uh, for sure. And they're gonna have a different macronutrient, micronutrient profile. Um, and, and again, I mean, is that a problem per se? Not really, if you're because you're you're probably not just consuming this plant-based. <laughs> right, you're just that's drinking milk all the time. That's it. <laughs> you know, like if you're if you were only eating that and drinking that, and that was all you had in your diet, then yeah, I'd say that, that there'd be probably some cause for concern. But again, if people are having a moderated, balanced diet, and that's just one part of your diet, then there's no there's no need to be concerned uh, because you're getting the, the profile that you need from other things as well. Hmm. I would add that. Also, it depends on what you're looking for in a beverage. If you want a very low calorie one, then maybe, and maybe don't, don't quote me on this, but I don't know how many <laughs> calories oat milk has compared to dairy, but I believe it's just like oat blended with water. So it shouldn't be that much. Whereas soy milk actually has a very high content of protein, almost as dairy. I believe it's like eight grams per cup, um, which is pretty comparable to milk. So I would say if you're looking for a high protein beverage, um, then maybe for you, soy beverage would be the best, hmm. but someone else might not be interested in that and they just want a low calorie beverage. So I would definitely say it depends on the person and what they're looking for. Right. I wasn't even thinking about the differences in terms of calories, like cholesterol, the actual amount of like nutrients, like proteins in it. But clearly yeah. there's, <laughs> it requires a lot more research. There's no simple answer. Yeah. No. <laughs> and our second question is, what makes lactose so special? Is it needed in our diets? And if it is, then why do people become lactose intolerant? Well, so lactose intolerance is very much linked to this gene uh, that codes for an enzyme known as lactase. And so that's a, 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 an enzyme that's, that, that's produced in our intestinal tract that's used to break down lactose into a simpler sh sugar that can then be absorbed by our body. Mm -hmm. And so there is, it's well known, there's certain, uh, there, there's a genetic basis to this. So certain ethnic uh, groups in the world, they, they are, they're going to have a higher prevalence of lactose intolerance compared to others. Um, and as people age, the effect, efficacy of that enzyme lactase is actually going to be reduced. So it becomes harder to digest down lactose. Mm -hmm. Lactose, I mean, lactose per se, right? Like lactose provides, provides you with some simple monosaccharides. You know, you could get those monosaccharides from other sources. The, that, that's, that per se is not really, is not really the, the, the thing that we need. It's just, it's a sugar that's, that our, we need, our body needs sugar. We need sugar to survive and to, to provide us with energy. So lactose is, represents a source of energy that can be used by the body, but it doesn't mean it's the only source or that it offers something you know, particularly unique. It's just, uh, it's just providing certain simple sugars in a more complex form. Lactose is just a more complex form. Mm -hmm. And so before we end for today, do you have any final comments you want to make about your work? And if there's only one thing that our listeners take away from our chat, what do you hope that it is? Maybe I would make a point of not focusing if something is good or bad and just giving this like bad reputation to certain foods just because um, they might have other effects in the body that we might not be aware of. Yeah, and I would just add to that, uh, that it's, this is my, my motto really when it comes to eating is that everything in moderation is okay, right? So you, you, mm. you, can, you can have the, the healthiest things in your diet that you think are, that, that are healthy, that are great. But if you have too much of even those things, you're gonna end up having, having issues. Um, so you, you really do need to think about balance and, and, and moderation. And that's really that, 
makes eating more fun that way too. If you're worried about, if you worry about, about everything that goes into your body, it often makes fun and uh, uh, it makes eating not a pleasurable experience. And I, and I think there's a lot of really wonderful, delicious foods out there. And we, we don't really want to deprive ourselves if we don't have to. And so right. uh, to enjoy them and, and think about uh, the big picture. I guess it goes back to that old saying that the dose makes the poison. So, you know, as long as you're not having too much of it, then it should all be fine. <laughs> yeah, very, very, very good quote. That's, that's very, very true. Yeah. And then my final point that I just would like to say is, is of course, this work, uh, just to you know, give, a, give a, an acknowledgement to, to the funders for this work. So we were fortunate to be funded by the Dairy Farmers of Canada for not only this, uh, the, well, it was really the mouse study that's ongoing now, hmm. but, uh, but also then this human work that, was, that we were able to pivot to during, during COVID. So I definitely want to give acknowledgement to our funders. And so that officially brings us to the end of today's podcast. A big thanks again to our guests, Dr. David Much and Melissa Gonzalez Soto for joining us today. Yay. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> is brought to you by your host, me, Michael Lim, with editing assistance from Ian Smith. If you're hungry to learn more about science topics, please check out Scribe Research Highlights. That's Scribe, S-C-R-I-B-E, Research Highlights on the University of Guelph website at uofguelph.ca. Or you can follow us on social media at UFGCBS. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. The music of the podcast comes from Upbeat. There'll be details in the show notes. And until next time, please stay curious. Stay curious.